I think that there's a really big gap in terms of addressing some really important pressing questions within mangroves. And so I'm hoping to try to help fill in that gap a little bit. Hey everyone, welcome to Nerdin' About. I'm Space Michael, and with me as always is someone who loves mornings, and that is Dr. Kaylee Byers. Oh, hello. I actually do love mornings. Well, I, I do sort of like laugh sometimes because I see early morning texts from you and I can say like, oh, Kaylee's up. Her brain is working. She sent me the messages <laughs> that she needs to send. And I look at them and sometimes it takes me like a minute, like just to understand like how the words connect. Like I'll stare at them like <laughs> how, what is happening right now? Yeah. So, yeah. Well, and I also don't usually send fully formed sentences, so that probably doesn't <laughs> that probably doesn't make it any easier. Well, and I appreciate you, Michael, because I know you're not fully a morning person, but here you are, 7 a.m. on a Tuesday. That is exceptional, and I think that's because we're both really excited to be podcasting this morning. Mm -hmm. So we're up bright and early today because we're chatting with Dr. Alex Moore, who's a postdoctoral fellow at the Princeton University High Meadows Environmental Institute. And Alex's work explores how predatory prey interactions influence ecosystem health, as well as the role that culture plays in restoration and conservation. And we are just very thrilled to be here chatting with you, Alex. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm also super happy to be here with the both of you. Bright and early. We've all got our uh, morning morning beverages. Mine is in a mug that says <laughs> yeah. crazy rat lady that my brother bought me <laughs> years ago. So Alex, today we're going to be talking about ecology and a few different like systems that you have worked in or are working in. And I thought we could start off at the top. Would you be able to tell us what drew you to ecological research? Oh, great question. I think that the best answer to this is to say that I've always been really interested in nature and being in the outdoors growing up was a big part of how I spent a lot of my time. And so as I was going through school, I was just trying to think of how do I translate my sort of joy and uh, the time that I spend in these spaces and I get a lot of calm and comfort and energy from it. How do I translate that into like learning and, and work? And so, you know, as I made my way through high school, I dabbled in chemistry and other scientific things because I was good at them. And then as I got into college, I, I really tried to refine that by choosing work that spoke to me as a person. Mm -hmm. And so I decided to, you know, jump jump ship from chemistry and move and move pretty quickly into ecology and biology and, and doing things that allowed me to ask questions about things that I'm really interested in and spend time in places that I feel good being in. So that's kind of the short version of, of how I got into what I'm doing now. Did you find that you were able to bring any of that like chemistry, those chemistry skills with you? Oh, absolutely not. No, nothing that I learned <laughs> in chemistry has, has been helpful, except for maybe like learning how to hold a pipette, like doing yeah. a couple different things in lab, but that's mostly it. <laughs> Great. I'm going to play that particular clip from my father, who's a chemist. And as a child, I remember once asking him a question about like photosynthesis. And all of a sudden, I was sitting down and looking at a diagram of a complex sugar. <laughs> I was like, I <laughs> am seven. <laughs> I don't know what's happening. So your research has looked at multiple aspects of ecosystems, but Ecosystems can vary. So what yeah. is an ecosystem? Yeah, in, in broad terms, an ecosystem is basically just a collection of different ecological communities. So like different species interacting with each other. 
uh, along with the physical environment that they occupy or live in at any given time. So it's really about the combination of animals and plants and then the physical spaces that they that they take up. One of the things that I think is really interesting is we often don't think of like cities as ecosystems, but they are, right? Like they're very active ecosystems and they're a growing area of research. And I think it's an interesting thing to think of what we typically might think of as an ecosystem is like wild, overgrown, like forested areas, but actually they're all around us everywhere. Yeah, absolutely. I, and I think that that is sort of a product of have the, the way that we usually take humans out of the conversation about like nature and wild things. Mm-hmm. Um, but the reality is that we are very much embedded in it. And like urban studies and urban ecosystem, like thinking about urban centers as being ecosystems is a really, really big place or area for, for research these days. So I think that a lot of people are starting to accept that reality. Yeah. So Alex, I'm curious uh, to learn more about your research with wetlands. Now, I grew up uh, in an area close to Vancouver here called North Delta, which has a bog. Uh, and I know that that's maybe slightly different than a wetland. So I'm curious Ooh. if you can help me understand what is a wetland, what is a bog, and how does this <laughs> uh, relate to your research on wetlands? Yeah, so wetland is basically a really big term that encompasses all kinds of ecosystems. So a bog is technically a type of wetland. There's more technical technical definition for for the term, but essentially a wetland is really just any ecosystem or place that undergoes any kind of inundation with water for either periodic periods of time or even for long-term periods of time. And so the more detailed component of that is, is the reality that they have to consist of plants that are adapted to being in these high stress environments that have adaptations for being um, waterlogged for long periods of time, how they deal with salt potentially, but basically anything, any sort of landmass that is periodically inundated with water or any sort of ecosystem that is periodically inundated with water is technically a wetland. Now, would these be good places for teenagers to go drink? <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know how to answer that question in terms of do I think it's a good idea, but it's certainly <laughs> a place that it likely does happen. <laughs> Are there any projections about increases in wetlands? Like I'm thinking about the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change mm. report and changing environments, and we're going to have drying and we're going to have flooding. Right. And it makes me wonder about whether or not we're going to see shifts in where our wetlands are or increases or decreases? So the answer to that is yes. And in terms of we will certainly see shifts. Um, I work mostly in coastal systems, so I can speak to the Mm -hmm. coastal part of things. I can't quite speak to more permanent inland wetland systems. Um, But I do know for coastal systems, we're seeing a lot of dynamic changing, a lot of losses of coastal systems, uh, just because the way that sea level rise works means that those coastal systems are essentially drowning. And so they can't Mm. maintain themselves with the sort of rate at which sea levels are rising. But then in other cases with warming temperatures, we are seeing coastal systems be able to migrate northward into areas that used to be too cold, but are now more hospitable for them. So there's certainly some trade-offs going on, but I, I, I would say that overall we're seeing losses more than we're seeing any kind of gains, yeah. at least across coastal systems. Okay. So your work, Alex, is focused on community structure and wetlands. Uh, what is community structure? What do you mean by community structure? Is that things that are living in the wetlands or is that also humans again? Right. Yeah. So at least in the context of the work that I do, community structure is really specific to the species, the non-human species that are occupying um, a given 
environment. And to be, I think, a bit clear, community structure is one of those weird ecological terms that really refers to the unique assemblage of species that are present within that environment and then their population sizes and how they interact with each other. So you might have like environment A that has species one, two, and three, and then uh, a separate environment B that has species, you know, four, five, and six. And so those are two different ecological communities and they're they're structured differently because they have different species. The population sizes of those species are different, the way they interact with each other, either through competition or predator-prey interactions, those are different kinds of ecological community structures. And so that's really what people are referring to when they when they use that term. So when are we going to get a uh, when are we going to get a Disney movie then? Because it seems like this is just <laughs> right for an animated movie of some city inside of one of these structures. I mean, I think that we already do in, in ways that we just don't pay attention to. So like the Jungle Book is a super great example of like community structure where you have all these different species and they're interacting with each other and they happen to also talk and speak English. And so we're able to connect with them in those ways. But I think it, like it's present in a lot of things. We just don't call it that as we're watching it and doing it. Right. Now the bare necessities will be in my head um, for the day. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, it's that's fine. I, yesterday it was in Canto all day, so that's fine. I needed a bit of a Disney shift. So as part of that uh, other work, I really want to ask you about crabs, essentially. This is where this question's going. I want to ask you about crabs. Mm-hmm. And um, in some of your work, you've talked about them as ecosystem engineers. So we're thinking of that community structure and all these organisms are interacting and some have different impacts on mm-hmm. others. What is an ecosystem engineer? What do we mean when we say that? Yeah, so an ecosystem engineer is effectively a species that happens to create or modify or maintain or even destroy habitat. So they significantly alter uh, the structure and function of the environment that they're found in. And so that then tends to lead to pretty significant shifts in like species diversity or like landscape level features of an area. So one example, and this is amorphous, but one type of way of thinking about it is if an ecosystem engineer is present, you'll have an environment that looks like picture A. If that one species is gone, then that environment will shift and look like something totally different. So then you'll have like environment B, largely just because that one species has been removed. And so it performs and does a pretty significant thing to the ecosystem that's that's pretty important. So humans, <laughs> probably <Yes>. pretty big <laughs> ecosystem engineers, imagining species running around getting their little engineering degrees and uh, <laughs> tiny little rings to wear. One of the the species that you mentioned in a paper was the purple marsh crab as a as an ecosystem engineer. Yeah. What's what's its deal? Is it is it doing good things? Is it uh, destroying the environment? Right. So again, the, the value judgment is always really tricky. And, and so it depends on who you are and what your priority is, I think, for that system. Right. And so for that paper and for the system, the area that I worked in, so along the, the east coast of the United States, the purple marsh crab, which is a, a burrowing crab, it's an herbivore, so it eats vegetation both above and below ground. It, along with its pal that it's usually found in the ecosystem with, was, is the fiddler crab. Kind of both of them together are really important ecosystem engineers for salt marshes uh, or even other kinds of marsh systems that they might be found in. And the reason for that is because they do a lot of burrowing in the ground. And so that sort of physical activity is super important important. So in the absence of these species, what you typically find within a salt marsh is just really, really thick, like matted peat as ground. Like it's very firm. It's hard to puncture into. It's got no oxygenation. So there's no air making its way through it. It's not porous in any kind of way. 
plants have a really hard time growing in those conditions. They can't get their roots quite deep within the system. And so it's just not a super hospitable place for many species to utilize. Mm -hmm. But in the presence of the purple marsh crab and the fiddler crab, for example, they do all of this burrowing behavior and this loosens up the soil. It aerates it so oxygen can get in. It allows for water to flow in and out of those different pores. And so that makes it much more hospitable for plants to come in and grow. And then those plants become habitat for other kinds of species. So you see just a whole shift in what that ecological community looks like, what that ecosystem looks like, uh, just in the presence or absence of, of those really important two species. So in thinking about this, that area and thinking about people living around these areas and perhaps more people living around these areas, how is that changing? And how is perhaps your research, you know, looking at how, I guess, humans are now sort of moving into these areas and interacting with them more? Yeah, I mean, so so humans have always lived disproportionately on the coastline. So that in itself is not really a new thing. Most coastal resources or most resources that, that human populations need tend to come from coastal regions. And so that part's not novel, right? That has sort of always been the case. I think that what's new now is really trying to recognize, one, the relationships that people have with those coastal systems. So the resources that we get from them, but then also thinking about how people interact with and tend to or recreate or restore or manage those coastal systems. I think we're learning a lot more about the nuances involved in that process. And I think that with climate change and with other kinds of changes that are happening at a global scale, we're also recognizing how important those coastal systems are for just like the protection and health of the communities of humans, not even just the species, but of the humans that live in those areas. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that there is a pretty big shift happening in terms of recognizing the importance of these systems and also acting on on recognizing that importance. So figuring out things that we can do that is helpful both for those ecosystems, but also for the communities who live in and around those areas. So I think that's something that's happening more and more that maybe historically we weren't seeing quite as much of. Yeah. Are there particular areas, I mean, uh, I guess thinking about North America, uh, that you're kind of interested in where Mm. that confluence of humans and uh, wetlands are sort of becoming either at at conflict uh, or perhaps uh, we're doing good at um, that relationship? (laughs) Yeah, I I think it's always tricky when we're talking about like, are humans a net good or net bad for for whatever thing we're looking at? (laughs) But so most of my work has historically focused on uh, the northeastern coastline of the United States, where we have lots of salt marshes. And there's a quite a bit of good historical research in those areas that I've learned a lot from and have built my current research off of. But I am shifting now. So I'm moving that work southward. So I work in southern United States right now on mangroves, because I'm really trying to broaden the kinds of ecosystems that I work in. But beyond that, I think that most of my work is starting to meander a bit more towards tropics and subtropics. So really getting into those areas where we're seeing pretty significant losses of these ecosystems. And we're also recognizing that these are communities of people who really rely heavily on these resources, who they themselves should be empowered to make decisions about how that land is used and and the resources that they're able to acquire from them. Um, And I see that as a pretty pressing need. And so that's kind of where my attention is, is starting to shift a bit these days. So tell us about mangroves. Like, what are they and what is uh, your research related to them? Yeah, so this one's actually, whether you realize it or not, is a bit of a trick question. So we talk about mangrove as if it's like a homogenous thing. um, But mangrove is actually a term that's like a catch-all that uh, describes a 
pretty big group of tree slash shrub species are mostly all woody, I think. Um, there's like at least 50 of them. And they're all called mangroves because they have the same kind of adaptations that allow them to exist along coastlines that undergo, again, periodic inundation and are really salty. And so a mangrove is effectively any species found along those coastal regions that have such adaptations. And so there's a bunch of different kinds of species that fall within that category. So they're, they're typically found along the subtropics and the tropics, just like a number of other kinds of coastal systems. And uh, I am sort of shifting my work into those ecosystems because they have been less studied with regard to some of the questions that I'm really interested in. And they're also incredibly important for both species and human populations. They're also in decline globally. And so uh, there's a sort of a pressing need to figure out like, how are they important? And what are the ways that we can protect them in ways that are also equitable and inclusive for the communities who, who live near them and utilize those resources? So that's kind of the reason that I've shifted into that area is, is because I feel like we have done a lot of work on salt marshes and there's a lot of people who will continue to do work on salt marshes. But I, I think that there's a really big gap in terms of addressing some really important pressing questions within mangroves. And so I'm hoping to try to help fill in that gap a little bit. So what are some of like those pressing questions that you're that you're delving into? And of course, I'm imagining climate change is going to come up at some point, probably like a theme throughout <laughs> uh, a lot of your a lot of your work. But yeah. um, what are some of those specifics? So I'm certainly not a climate scientist by training. The, the work that I do is really more geared towards how we can best conserve and restore these ecosystems with sort of a preference for restoration is kind of what my work focuses on. And so one of the things that's really important to recognize is that we do restoration across a myriad of different kinds of ecosystems, but we're not super great at it overall. Um, when we think about sort of metrics of restoration success, you, you take a restored ecosystem and you compare it to a theoretical healthy ecosystem, and the restored system is not matching up with the healthy system. So there's a big gap in terms of like how well we restore ecosystems. Uh, and so what I'm trying to do in my work is try to figure out why we have that gap and then think about ways to apply that knowledge to improve restoration practice and improve restoration outcomes. And so with regard to mangroves in, in particular, historically, restoration has really focused on fixing a lot of the like physical characteristics of a mangrove. So making sure that the soil is in place and, and has good quality and making sure that the, the hydrology is, is intact so that the water is flowing properly through the system. And then just like planting mangrove trees and effectively like forest monocultures. And that has been largely unsuccessful. And so the work that I am doing now, the research that I do is, is trying to understand the importance of different kinds of species interaction. So different species you might find within a mangrove, what role do they play within that system? And might they be really important for including in restoration outcomes to improve how how healthy and how, how well the system is functioning. And so my research with that ecological perspective is, is asking questions about the importance of species, of species interactions, and how might we use that information to better inform how we do restoration across those ecosystems. So uh, Alex, you mentioned these sort of different animals and things that live around them. What, mm -hmm. what, are, the, what are the benefits of mangroves for non-human and human animals? Yeah, the list is super long. So I'll just like do a quick <laughs> a highlight reel, I guess. I mean, number one is that they're, they're just, they give habitat, right? So I think habitat is one of the biggest things that they provide for the different species that you find within them. They also are important for food resources. So you can think of examples of like birds that might either be resident species or migratory species that come into mangroves to find food resources or to nest. And so they, can, they tend to be a really unique and important ecosystem at different life stages for different kinds of species. 
another example is that they're super great nursery habitats. So like juvenile sharks will be found within mangrove areas that live and sort of hide within their, their network of roots underwater. And then they then eventually make their way out of mangroves when they get big enough to not be predated upon by other larger, larger species. And so they perform a lot of really important functions in that way for just like critters, right? Mm-hmm. But then for people, they also do a ton of things. So they're super important food and water resources also for people. Mangroves in particular have a lot of important timber that's used for building and other kinds of recreational uh, needs and uses uh, in the areas where they're found. Mm-hmm. They also protect coastal communities from storm surges and from hurricanes and other things that are expected to increase over time across the world. And then lastly, but certainly not least, is that they are really important just like cultural regions. So there are lots of communities who utilize them for different cultural values or religious, other kinds of education systems, different kinds of traditional ecological knowledge. There's a lot that is is sort of rooted in these coastal ecosystems for different local communities. So they, they do a ton and that was again like my highlight reel but there's a lot more you could get into I also like that rooted in was in there that uh, pun is my <laughs> not intentional but I appreciated it um so mangroves are sort of like these protectors that are protecting little shark shark nurseries mm-hmm. they're protecting us they're providing us uh with lots of resources they're culturally significant and as you mentioned you know climate change poses a challenge to, I mean, everything really. Mm-hmm. But what are what are some of the challenges that they might pose to mangrove ecosystems? You just mentioned right, storm surges. I'm imagining storm surges increasing and without those mangroves, we have less protection. Yeah, it's it's not a great outlook <laughs> at the moment. <laughs> I know. Um, it's, yeah. it's, so in terms of expected impacts moving forward, I think that one of some of the things that we can uh, look for are Uh, We know that sea level rise is happening and will continue to happen. And so even though these are systems that have adapted for being inundated over long periods of time, they do have a balance between like how much sea level rise they can tolerate and how much they can adapt to over a period of time. And Mm -hmm. so at the current rate, sea level rise is happening way too fast for these systems to adapt. And so you're, you're, you know, they're drowning along those coastlines. And so we're losing these coastal systems as a result of that. We also have to be concerned with uh, increasing or alterations in like precipitation patterns and storms. And that I think leads to both, it can increase damage to these coastal systems, but also can bring in a lot more salinity. So more salt into these systems. And they are very salt sensitive, even though they have adaptations for salts, there's only so much they can tolerate. And so that's likely to lead to an an additional decrease in, in mangrove systems. Um, You also have to deal with erosion and increased temperatures that in some ways might help with productivity or like plant growth, but in other ways influences other elements of the system that are more difficult for these species to adapt to. So overall, it's a a net negative (laughs) unless unless we consider also like the the migration, right? So we are seeing a northward migration of mangroves. And so that's sort of an indication that they are shifting due to the the sort of experienced climate changes that we've seen so far. But even that is problematic, right? So if they're moving northward, they're moving into systems that other species have historically occupied. And like, what does that mean for those different interactions? And what does it mean for those resident species? So there's just like a lot of, it's a mixed bag, but it's also like a mixed bag of mostly bad stuff. (laughs) So it's always such a bummer to bring up climate change. And I feel like I talk about it 95% (laughs) of the time now. And I, but at the same time, I think it's really important to think of the cascading impacts. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned 
that mangroves have these adaptations for salt. And it just got me thinking about, you know, seabirds with their little, their salt excreting glands. <laughs> what, what is it that mangroves can do to deal with the salt? Yeah. So they have two different ways of doing it. And so I will sort of do a quick preface here by saying I'm not a botanist, so I can't get yeah. into the nitty gritty, but I do know sort of the large scale, sort of big picture. And so the two ways that they do it uh, is one, they have a system in place that can just prevent salts from getting into their tissues to begin with. And so they're sort of filtering in water and they're keeping salts out. So that's one way, but that's only like a small subset of mangrove species do this. The bulk of mangrove species actually allow salt into their system and then excrete it out of their system. And so you'll see, if you, if you Google this at any point in time, you can see that there are examples of mangrove trees, mangrove shrubs with leaves that have basically like little salt crystals on the leaves because those are just like poor on the leaf surface that salt has been excreted out of. And so you can see these crystals develop on the surface. And so they're just like kicking the salt out so that it doesn't build up in their systems. That's really cool. Can we harvest that salt? Do you know? Like, does anybody harvest it? I can't think of a reason why not off the top of my head. And so I would imagine the answer might be yes. But uh, again, maybe, I know we're quoting me on this, but I don't know. (laughs) I don't know if this is the exact, if if that's the exact answer. Yeah, we will quote, not quote. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) But that is a... It's interesting thinking of going around just like picking up a leaf and having a having a lick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess never do that. Don't just pick <laughs> don't, up things don't just do it. Them. Yeah. So you're talking about you know the the myriad of benefits that uh, mangroves have for ecosystems, the the impacts on them. I imagine you also use a combination of tools. What what are some of the tools you're hoping to use in this in this system that you're moving into? So as, I guess the best way to put it is so my my background is as an ecologist who does field experiments, and so that is a, a lot of what my work in these areas looks like. And so in going out into the field to do research, what I do for the most part is I set up a lot of uh, exclusion areas. So I'm, I'm really interested in that question of like the role that different species might play within an ecosystem. And so part of how I try to get at answering that question is by setting up an area within an ecosystem, really setting up multiple areas, and then excluding some species from that area, and then seeing what happens in terms of how the system performs, how it functions, and measure different uh, important metrics. And I do that across different areas to also get a sense of like, how might these uh, dynamics that we're seeing at this site be different at another location with similar or different species to really try to get a broad Mm -hmm. sense for the role that these different species are playing across these systems. And that will tell us like, how important are they? And then should we be including them in, in some of the ways that we manage these ecosystems? So not only focusing on the plant, but also the other species and other critters that are present across those ecosystems. Mm -hmm. Um, And then another way that I'm doing more now is really trying to get a sense of like the soil microbial community. So thinking about like the bacteria and the fungi that are present across these systems, because I think that they are undervalued or at least underexplored, I'll say, in in coastal systems. And the microbiota are super important. They do so many things in terms of like processing nutrients and making them more available for plants and decomposition, all these things. We don't have a great sense of how they, you know, what they do in mangrove systems. And so that's another thing that I'm diving a bit more into these days. Speaking of your research, uh, you've argued for a holistic approach to studying ecosystems. So what what does that holistic approach look like and, and why is it important? Yeah, so for me, it really means not only going into a site and asking ecological science-based questions and then answering my questions and then leaving and being happy about having done those things. (laughs) Um, I think that it's actually really important to make sure that local communities are both incorporated into the process of the work that you do and also are given power to leverage, you know, make decisions 
themselves about the work that I do. And so thinking about this from a holistic perspective for me means recognizing the importance of local human communities and their values and their culture and how those things influence ecosystems and how those ecosystems then feed back and influence those communities. Like recognizing all of that along with, you know, um, maybe a more Western scientific perspective on things, but not valuing that Western scientific perspective over anything else. Like it's really about incorporating these different value systems and these different knowledge systems for the benefit of both ecological or ecosystems and and also for the benefit of those communities who live in those areas. So taking a more social science approach in tandem with the natural science is is what I mean when I say that. Uh, Well, Alex, this has been an amazing conversation. Thanks for bringing us into these weird, wonderful uh, places that you studied wetlands. Uh, We've got some more questions from another species inside of these ecosystems. Uh, Do you know who these uh, these people are? Is it the nerd herd, Michael? (laughs) Yes, it's the nerd herd. Why is the sky? What's at the center of a black hole when we evolve? Does anyone have free will? What is like carbon based? The fastest thing on earth. Why do we keep pets? It's time for listener questions. All right. If you want to get in on the Nerd Herd questions, uh, we post for them on our social media at Nerd Night YVR. Our first one comes in from Brittany, who says the teeth mangrove scene in Life of Pi has haunted them. Can that actually happen? Have you seen Life of Pi, Alex? So I have not seen Life of Pi in the movie. I read the book in high school. And so I can't say that I know exactly what you're talking about, but I'm pretty sure the answer is no, just based (laughs) on how the question was phrased. Well, it looks like it's a carnivorous island. So that also sounds made up as well. But (laughs) what the, Yan Martell, that's who wrote Life of Pi? Mm, Yes, 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 yes. Mm Mm-hmm. So, so, so what, what could they possibly be getting at here with a carnivorous island? I mean, all I can think of are things like, like carnivorous plants, so like a Venus flytrap or, or other kinds of things that are, that are plants that get a lot of their nutrients from other living things. And so those exist in the real world. But the, the carnivorous island is, is, sounds like a fiction. And, and so, yeah, so that's the extent to which I think I can address that, that particular point. If it does exist, I do not want to go there. It would not be on the top of my list. (laughs) It's a metaphor for a place that you haven't discovered yet. It's kind of scary. So whatever it is, it's it's out there. You don't know what it is. It's maybe scary. I mean, I think real ecosystems are scary enough. And so I don't know that I want to endeavor to explore a potentially fake one that sounds even scarier than the real ones. Uh, Do you want to stick around and uh, nerd out with us a little bit more, Alex? Oh, yeah, of course. What you about. What you about. All right, if you want to get in on the nerd outs, we also post for those on our social media at NerdNightYVR. And we did get one in from Ritika, uh, who is nerding out on whether aliens would come to Earth for business or pleasure. What do you think, Alex? Oh, geez. Um, I kind of think that it would probably be like business, like exploratory business, because I kind of imagine that they already have their sets of pleasure in other places that are already known. So that would be my guess. They're probably looking at Earth like, that looks like a carnivorous island. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to go there. Yeah, I just watched a, a series of movies, actually, that were all on the same theme, like Close Encounters with the Third Kind, uh, Starman, and Explorers. It was interesting because the good movies are the ones where the motivation is is more ambiguous. 
big bit and it's more sort of like the humans it's more about sort of like how are we learning from the aliens arriving mm -hmm. the the worst of those was explorers which has a young ethan hawk and a river phoenix but uh that was not it's that was not a great movie but the motivation of the aliens makes the most sense because it was teenage aliens that discovered earth and her tv and they were like oh they seem to have cool music and cool let's go and check out and learn more about that and then like the alien parents come and like what are you doing you know like stop fooling around with those uh those human kids <laughs> so that made more sense it was like more like adolescent uh, curiosity mm -hmm. more than anything uh alex what have you been nerding out about recently Great question. I think that I have been most nerding out these days about like languages. It's not super sciencey, mm. um, but I've just been. So I'm currently in the process of of learning Japanese, <gasps> and and so through that, I have been really, really, really impressed and intrigued by just the history of language development across different regions and where it all comes from, and how in, in Japan they have three different writing systems that everyone learns and how that baffles me as an adult whose brain only uses, you know, a certain capacity at any given time. So I find it impressive that there are people who have to spend so much more of their time just learning their language compared to what we do here. So I've been really impressed and in, in incessantly Googling and learning and reading books about, about Japanese and historical languages and their evolution over time. Are you using any of those apps that are really popular right now? Like yeah. Duolingo? I'm currently using Duolingo and it works well for me because it like shames me if I don't do my stuff in time <laughs> and I find that I'm pretty shame motivated. So the the constant reminders to be like, oh no, you're going to lose your streak is, is yeah. something that really motivates me to get things done. It's pretty brilliant how they've gamified learning and mm -hmm. uh, how they're kind of tricking people into uh, learning stuff. It's, it's pretty great. It's working for me. Michael, have you used any of those uh, language learning apps? Uh, yeah, I've been sort of like, I've been teetering on it. I haven't quite like fully dove in. But speaking of things that I've been diving into, uh, so we're recording this on March 15th, uh, which is one day after one of my favorite event days of the year. That's Pi Day. It was March 14th. But it's also two days after my least favorite day of the year. Uh, Alex, can, can you guess what my least favorite day of the year is that happened two days ago? No, I'm terrible at guessing games and I have no idea. <laughs> it's the day that I love to hate <laughs> the start of daylight saving. So my hatred of this day goes all the way back to when I was in, I was in school, you know, when we had to, uh, we had like physical alarm clocks that you had to change. And I was always like tripping up, like either like in the spring or in the fall, arriving to school one hour early. Can you imagine like how awful like you, I get there and I'm one hour early and like I'm just standing there waiting for them to open the school door <laughs> or then arriving one hour late. This happened many times. And then uh, what I would also do is I would change the clock ahead of times. But then my parents would come in. They're like, oh, Michael's going to be late. Let's change it again. So then it's like two hours out of sync. <laughs> and then I wake up and I'm running around the house like looking at every single clock, like what time is it? And so this is sort of like fueled like my agitation for humans, you know, trying to manipulate time because, you know, because I understand, you know, time is something that just happens. It's something that humans have discovered and it's our relationship with it. So I get annoyed at this concept that that we need to manipulate time for um, for whatever purposes. You know, in this day and age, 
we don't have this problem. We've got our smartphones that just our time just changes on its own, which sort of mm-hmm. fuels this annoyance because now it's this thing that is automatic that we don't even need to think about. There's this automatic process that is affecting our lives. Nobody's thinking about it. It's just happening. It has zero benefit to anyone. <laughs> you know, some of like the pros of daylight saving is like, oh, it's going to save on more energy. But, you know, like we're using just as much electricity right now on our computers, like in the daytime, uh, as we do in the evening time. I'm not sure that, that there's that. There's been a lot of studies that show that there isn't really a whole lot of benefit to it. So I would love to hear some counter arguments to this because it is <laughs> widely unpopular. We had a referendum here in British Columbia where it was like over 90% people said to get rid of it, which is astronomical. Like, can you get 90% of any uh, population of people to agree on anything? But still, we're still not changing it. Like, there's no motivation to actually change it. So I did find one blog post that was like, I wanted to hear some counter arguments. So uh, I found this uh, this blog post quick tips uh, for surviving spring spring forward daylight saving time. There's more light to enjoy in the evening. Like, okay, um, I guess if you work nine to five, I guess like there is more light in the evening. Like <laughs> maybe, okay, it's it's mm-hmm. there. It's I'm going to say that's a, a loose uh, a loose one. Mm-hmm. Uh, crime rate drops during a daylight saving time. Like just that one day <laughs> or like following? <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I'm yeah, I'm just kind of like, yeah, that seems kind of iffy, you know, like maybe everyone's just too tired to crime, you know, because like we changed our time. Um, the other one was that it minimizes energy consumption and it lowers costs, uh, which I've already said, which I think is very dubious. And this is when I realized that this blog post is from an energy company. Oh. So this whole thing that we're just like letting happen is just a big scam, I think. And then what I found really funny is that right at the, right at the bottom where it's like some, uh, some, some good things about climate change, it says, stay positive. <laughs> stay positive? No. That also seems that we were to begin with, and that's already, yeah. already wrong. <laughs> um, so that is my, my nerd out, my nerd rant, uh, my <laughs> annual nerd rant of the year. Uh, what about you, Kaylee? What are you uh, ranting about and nerding about these days? Uh, well, you know what? I want to nerd out about a new paper uh, that's winding its way through the peer review process right now, as it should be. That's how it goes. I'm excited about it. It's led by Amara Beatty, who's done a really incredible job of this of this research. And so I want to I want to hype it. And for the study, uh, Amara was interested in understanding what kills bats in British Columbia. Now that might sound like it's like a pretty morbid topic, but it's actually incredibly important to understand why animals die or what makes them sick. Um, Because if you know those things, you can actually inform things like management and conservation practices. And so to do this study, uh, Amara used something called passive surveillance. So passive surveillance essentially involves members of the public submitting dead animals that they found to, in our case, the provincial veterinary lab. And I'll, I'll say at the top, <laughs> um, the passive surveillance has problems for these kinds of studies. It's important, but, but it has problems because you're relying on people to submit animals. So you're more likely to find species that live near people, right, that are in your backyard or have died by human associated causes. And for those reasons, you can't really say anything about the true proportion of, say, bats that have died by a thing. But it is actually a it's not actually a true proportion of the of the wild population. It can be used to to signal towards areas that need 
some more research and consideration. So Amara looked at dead bats that were submitted by the public from 2015 to 2020. And I want to talk about the most interesting finding to me from that work, which was that the leading cause of death by bats was <laughs> death by cats. Oh, and no. that's, you know, it's maybe not that <laughs> surprising necessarily, but bats that were killed by cats were in better body condition than bats killed by other causes like direct trauma, say through vehicles or emaciation. So better body condition essentially means that they were fatter, which suggests that cats were killing bats that were less likely to die by other causes. So perhaps healthier bats. And that's important because many species of bats are already facing severe population declines throughout Canada, throughout North America because of environmental pressures, because of a, a white nose syndrome, which we thankfully don't have here yet in BC. It's, it's coming. It's not here yet. And I think this is really important because cat predation is something we can actually manage. And in fact, domestic cats as predators of wildlife is not new information at all. There's a, a recent paper that just came out in the Journal of Biological Conservation that I will link that cats were found to kill native species increasingly next to forest edges too. So their their risk to wildlife is, is higher when they're nearer to forests. So for wildlife conservation, it's really important to keep cats indoors or have supervised outdoor cat time. And also keeping keeping cats away from those forested edges uh, might be particularly important. So don't come for me. <laughs> this is a contentious <laughs> topic and I'm getting ready for everyone to start yelling at me on Twitter. But keep your cats inside uh, to protect your friendly neighborhood bats. So that's what I've been nerding out about. Cats are for cuddling in your bed uh, and for, you know, uh, getting all over your laptop, uh, not rolling around <laughs> in the backyards. Is that what you're saying, Kaylee? Yeah. Yes, they can depredate my laptop as much as they want. <laughs> I prefer them to not depredate on adorable birds or bats. Oh, amazing. Uh, well, Alex, thank you so much for joining us on this here episode of Nerdin' About. Uh, you're heading over here to the left coast soon. Uh, where can people learn more about you and your work? Oh, God. I happen to be surprisingly all over the internet. Uh, so definitely on Twitter. So I think that my handle is available on, on your, um, your site that you posted. Um, I'm also all over the Princeton website because I'm doing my postdoc here. I worked at the American Museum of Natural History for a bit. So I'm also still posted on their stuff. I have my own lab website. So it's called uh, inclusiveconservationlab.com. And so there's a bunch of information there about the work that I do, the lab that I'm hoping to set up. And I think that you'll get plenty from just looking at those resources. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. Glad to hear you're all over the internet and we're both very excited for your <laughs> grand arrival to UBC. And thank you to everyone for tuning in. If you want to hear more from us, you can follow us on our socials at NerdNightYVR on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. This episode is hosted by us, edited by me, and mixed by Elise Lane. We'll be back in a couple of weeks, but until we meet again, get your man groove on in your local ecosystem. Mm -hmm.